guys seen in the ER, what do you have questions about? So we're going to talk about some gynecologic emergencies. We're going to review just some pertinent statistics, a slide on that. Talk about some common practice patterns for emergency care of women, and that comes out of an emergency care um, textbook, actually, of obstetrics and gynecology uh, by Tint and Alley, so if you guys have that. Differential diagnosis of major gynecologic problems. We'll kind of go through that quickly because that's kind of textbook stuff. And then kind of get to three or four case reviews. If we have time, we'll go over all of them. All right, so just a little bit on background. In 2009, there were over 119 million visits to emergency rooms across the country, averaging out about 40 and a half visits per 100 persons. Women tend to come in a little bit more than men, and ER visits continue to increase annually while the number of ER room, emergency rooms is decreasing. So you guys are just busy, 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 seeing more patients all of the time. Nationwide injury or poisoning seems to be the most common reason to come on into the ER, but the second most common reason patients come in is abdominal pain. So I'm sure you see that every day. So you're going to combine women and abdominal pain, and that's going to equal GYN consult lots of the time. So um, hopefully, after this lecture, you'll feel more comfortable taking care of a few things that you're going to see a little bit more commonly. So. A few practice patterns for the emergency care of women, and this is like six or seven points that you kind of keep in the back of your mind, and it comes from um, Obstetric and Gynecologic Emergencies. It's a book by Tintin Alley, as I mentioned. Um, number one, all women of childbearing age are presumed pregnant until demonstrated otherwise. You guys know that because every time you call us, you already have the urine pregnancy test cooking. So definitely want to keep pregnancy at the top of the list because most of the time these women are coming in, abdominal pain, vaginal bleeding. So you're going to divide it out. Pregnant causes, non-pregnant causes, and just kind of start from there and work down your list. The evaluation of lower abdominal pain in women requires pelvic examination and should be complemented by pelvic ultrasound, CT scan when appropriate. So complemented. You don't always have to get an ultrasound. You don't always have to get a CT scan. But if a woman comes in with abdominal pain, especially if she has bleeding, you have to start with a pelvic exam and not running in there and doing a vaginal exam, but a speculum exam. I give the same kind of talk to my medical students when they come through and to my own residents, because a lot of times you run in and you're like, oh, you're bleeding and you have a positive pregnancy test. I'm gonna throw the ultrasound on and see what's going on, make sure your baby's okay. So one quick story. I was a chief resident. I sent my intern down to the ER because she got a call that somebody was pregnant and had some vaginal bleeding. Can you come on down? We wanna make sure everything's okay. So she goes down and she was a new intern, so she's a little nervous. And by the time I got down there, you know, a little while later, she was holding the speculum in her hand. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> she said, well, I was waiting for you to do the exam with me. But don't worry, I already looked at the baby. Everything looks great. I did some quick biometry. So she, it's okay doing quick biometry. She didn't do a speculum exam, but don't ask me. So she, she looked at the baby, reassured the mom. Baby's like around 20 weeks and good heartbeat and everything looks great. I'm like, okay. I said, well, you didn't examine the patient. I pulled the drape back and there is blood everywhere all over the bed. Put a speculum in, the os is open, and the placenta is like hanging out. This is 20 weeks, this is a pre-viable fetus, and the patient is, is bleeding pretty good now, and her vitals, she's a little bit tacky, but she had, hadn't really tanked yet, because she's a young, healthy woman. You guys know they have a good reserve. So, you know, me and Dr. Marengo has to then take the patient for an emergent DNE. After my intern had already reassured her that a baby was doing great, so it's a really sad story, but it really drives a point home that you have to put a speculum in first. You're going to examine from the outside in and really find out what's going on before you give your patient this false hope that, oh, everything's great with your baby. You need to make sure that that's really true. So I can't stress enough, 
speculum exam, speculum exam, speculum exam. A lot of times you're going to make that diagnosis. If your os is wide open and pro products of conception are coming out, I mean, a lot of times to CYA, you're doing an ultrasound anyway, but you know, if the pregnancy's falling out, there's not a lot else you're going to need. And not all of you are going to be in big major cities. Some of you may be out in the middle of nowhere somewhere, and you may not have all of these capabilities that we have here. Documentation of GYN and obstetric review of systems and family history is necessary for women with emergency conditions. When the students rotate through with me, they know I'm a big stickler. OB history, GYN history, past medical history, surgical history, all those things are important. It doesn't take long to get a few extra points. Because if a woman comes in with abdominal pain and a mass, and you know she has a family history, strong family history of ovarian cancer, you may move that up at the top <coughs> of your list. But if you didn't ask, you know, you don't know. Fetal heart tones whew, should be documented in all pregnant women being treated for acute medical conditions by Doppler or by ultrasound. So it's really considered a vital sign. If you have a pregnant woman who comes in for whatever, and you can, and they're old enough to get DOP tones, you really got to document what's going on. There was a case recently in the OR. I think somebody went to the OR and hadn't checked DOP tones before they went in, and not on our service. And um, unfortunately, the baby, when they checked like the next day, had no heartbeat. So did the baby have no heartbeat before going into surgery? We never know, but that's a really big issue. And I think recently there was a patient who came in through the ER that was a trauma that was pregnant, didn't know she was pregnant, and had multiple CT scans and things done. Well, she needed to have those things done anyway. You have to, you know, have to stabilize the mom before you can stabilize the baby. But it's important to keep, you know, to use your DOP tones as vital signs and to record those on the chart. In fact, I would say that any fast scan routinely should take a look at the uterus, a quick pass through the uterus, any woman of childbearing age and you know see if it's pregnant and we can see you know anything past six seven weeks pregnant we can probably see it on our quick ultrasound as we're scanning through the bladder right it's not hard i mean you're probably getting the urine pregnancy test anyway while that's cooking but if you're doing that fast scan a lot of women as you know will come in not even know they're pregnant so you're the first one to diagnose them and let them know these mm -hmm. tests are necessary because you know the fastest way to get a poor outcome for the baby is to have a poor outcome from the mom you know if you can't get the mom healthy you're not going to have a healthy baby Women with a viable fetus who have experienced blunt abdominal trauma require fetal monitoring as soon as possible. So as soon as mom's stabilized, uh, we get them on the monitor. After about 23-ish weeks, pretty much, we monitor them at least for the first four hours. If they have no contractions in the first four hours, there's good evidence to show that they're not going to have a placental abruption. Even if they're having a little irritability or a few contractions, we keep them on labor and delivery typically for a 23-hour rule-out abruption and do serial labs and apply Howard Becky and those types of things. And then just, you know, always considering domestic violence when women present to the ER with isolated facial injuries or implausible explanations of injury. I think it's far too common, especially in pregnancy, but just a lot of times we're not broaching that subject with our patients because of whatever reason, discomfort and whatnot. So finding a way to get that into your review systems is very important. So this is kind of boilerplate stuff. I'm going to kind of fly through it a little bit so we can get to the case reviews. But differential diagnosis of major, major gynecologic problems, as we talked about, a woman comes in with bleeding, what are some of the things we need to think about? Is she pregnant? Okay, if she's pregnant, we're gonna think about implantation bleeding. So that's usually around the time of the woman's missed period. You know, we, the blood vessels are getting disrupted in the uh, myometrium. It's pretty light, sometimes can be as heavy as a regular period. Um, any of the types of abortions, so threatened ABs, inevitable ABs, complete ABs, and incomplete ABs, okay? OBGYNEs, lots of different types of abortions. Remember when you're talking to your patients, abortion is our terminology, lay people call it miscarriages. So when you go in and say, how many abortions have you had? Your patient may not take that very well. So have you had any miscarriages? What type, etc.? Threatened AB, of course, is first trimester bleeding. 
os is closed, the pregnancy is still viable or presumed viable, you're trying to work that up. In that inevitable AB means the os is open, that pregnancy is coming out. Okay, it's still in there, the os is open, they're bleeding, it's, gonna, it's not gonna make it. Complete AB, they've passed everything all the way through, their os is already closed, it's, they've come in. And that happens quite a bit, they bleed, 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 they're waiting in the waiting room, they already had cramping at home. Half the time they pass it in the bathroom before you see them. You know, you come in and it's complete. Incomplete AB, probably this picture here, they've passed some of the tissue but not all of it, so they're continuing to have pretty heavy bleeding and that can lead up to an emergency. Kind of like the patient I was talking about with the previa, they can just bleed and bleed and bleed and go into DIC, okay? So we need to get those patients evacuated. Uh, when I was a resident, we were able to do DNCs right in the emergency room. We had a section DNC machine where I was. And then ultimately we moved on to a manual vacuum aspirator, which is a very easy, straightforward, quick thing to be able to do as a gynecologist instead of kind of waiting around for the OR to let us go in and do the five minute procedure. Ectopic pregnancy, we're gonna talk a little bit more about and then molar pregnancy. Um, other types of vaginal bleeding, dysfunctional uterine bleeding is basically anything that causes anovulation. So if you're not ovulating regularly, basically your endometrial lining can build up, it'll slough off and you can bleed, bleed, and bleed. And that can happen you know, post-puberty, during the reproductive years, and then also during the perimenopausal years when your ovulation is irregular. And then neoplastic causes of bleeding, so any of those cancers. Inflammatory reasons, infection, vulvitis, vaginitis, cervicitis, endometritis, anything that has an itis is an infection, so look, speculum exam, culture, etc. And then other more uncommon reasons, but coagulopathies, blood dyscrasias, and endocrinopathies. Typically that's gonna be your teenager, your young gal who's first menarche or the first couple periods, and she comes in and she's on her menses and she can't stop bleeding. When they come to the emergency room, about a fifth of those young girls are gonna have a bleeding disorder, most commonly von Willebrand's disease. So if you're seeing that and they're really anemic and they're really symptomatic in their adolescence, you need to keep that in the back of your mind. Before you start those patients on OCPs, you might talk to gynecology, draw von Willebrand panel as part of your workup. Once you start on my OCPs and you draw for von Willebrand, it's gonna increase your von Willebrand factor antigen a little bit. Uh, so your tests later when they go on to endocrinology may not be valid, okay? PID commonly seen in the emergency departments can be a cause of bleeding. That's a obvious path specimen there, PID. Foreign body, I don't know how many times I've had women come in and say, oh, my periods are really irregular, I'm bleeding and spotting. And I take a history and they had a Mirena placed like two months prior. And I'm like, well, didn't anybody counsel you on Mirena IUDs or progesterone secreting that can cause irregular bleeding or spotting for the first three to six months? A lot of them will say, I don't know, somebody put something in there and I don't know which one it was. Not so great. So foreign bodies, <laughs> besides IUDs obviously and younger children, you have to think about foreign bodies that little kids decide they want to put a Barbie shoe up in there or something. We've seen all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, the next common gynecologic problem, probably pelvic and abdominal pain, as we talked about in the first slide. Th that can also be pregnancy related, so any of those miscarriages, types of miscarriage we talked about, as well as ectopic pregnancy. And then disorders of the uterus and cervix, again, causing pain, could be cervicitis, endometritis, degenerating myoma. That's on the differential a lot, it's not that common, but you can see some markers of that, certainly on CT scan, MRI, um, and it is a possibility as those fibroids start to get big and outgrow their blood supply. Pelvic and abdominal pain. Uh, moving on to the adnexa, certainly you can get salpingitis, TOAs, uh, big endometriomas out there, torsion, uh, torsion of hydatative morgagni. I mean, really, that's not very common. 
I, I just like this in, in surgery because we see this quite a bit, so I always ask the students what this little structure is. So that's it, it's a hydatid morgagna. It's a little cyst that hangs off the fallopian tube. If it gets big enough, and it's usually hanging on by a little thread, it can wrap around that tube and cause torsion. That's why it's even on there. Rupture of a follicular or corpus luteum cyst, it's overused. I mean, I think I, I see a patient almost every day that says, oh, I have cysts, or my cysts rupture. And I kind of say, well, everybody has cysts. It's very common. Anybody who's ovulating is gonna develop a cyst from time to time. So um, we'll talk a little bit about that later. Ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. We actually, in our department, just had a talk about this. And I think, I don't, have any of you seen that in the ER, OHSS? Yeah, it's not super common, but it's becoming more common, especially with in vitro fertilization. Um, it's very rarely can be seen just with uh, oral clomid and things when you do ovulation induction. It is one of the true emergencies that can happen to women. I think there were several deaths, I mean several, Young women don't die very often, but uh, for OBGYN type stuff, especially infertility, there might have been about a dozen deaths nationwide because of OHSS, and typically in like 20-something year olds. So it's a big deal. These ovaries get hyperstimulated. They develop big cysts, and there's a lot of fluid shifts, and women get huge ascites and can end up in the ICU, and it's, it's pretty bad. So be on the lookout for that. Pleural effusions, yeah. Degenerating ovarian tumors, of course, that can also be a cause of ovarian or abdominal pain. Non-gyne problems, you guys are all masters at this stuff already. That's in appendicitis, obviously. Um, Appies, mesenteric lymphadenitis, diverticulitis, on and on. Um, so just because she's a woman with abdominal pain doesn't mean she can't have these other things. So keep that on the differential, of course, even when they're pregnant. A quick word about follicular cysts, as I've mentioned, it's the majority of the nexal masses in the reproductive years are follicle cysts. They are functional tumors, meaning they're normal. These things happen. And they disappear usually in one to three months. And they can be pretty big. I mean, eight, 10, 12 centimeters. Even when they are that big, they do tend to resolve. So they're really of no clinical sig significance, rarely cause symptoms, and we follow them up with ultrasound in two or three months. Hemorrhagic, hemorrhagic corpus luteal cysts. Usually a little bit smaller. They have a pretty, you know, ground glass type appearance here on ultrasound, pretty straightforward. They occasionally can be tender. Um, they generally regress in a few weeks. Occasionally, I've seen it a couple times, women can have hemorrhagic cysts where they can have, you know, just a belly full of blood. And we've had to take them to the OR because one little arterial vessel just will not stop bleeding. I think I've had it twice that's happened where we've had to take somebody, scope them and stop the bleeding and suck out all the blood so they're not so uncomfortable pretty rare. This is painful to look at, so I'm going to pretty much skip through it. I just put it on there in case you wanted to reference it. It's from Comprehensive Guy, and it's all the different kinds of masses you can get. These are the benign ones and the age group. So the most common is serous cystadenomas for the benign group. And, you know, as you get older, the you know, you get cancer more often. The most common ovarian cancer is going to be a serous cystadenocarcinoma. There are several masses that can present in childhood if you're seeing some, some peds kids here. Follicle cysts can happen at birth. It's not very common, but of course the, the babies can get the estrogen from the mom. So occasionally if you see a mass in a, in a kiddo, that can be it. Wilms tumors, other tumors of the GI tract, just ger germinomas and teratomas are rare. Later on in adolescence, some of the masses that are a little more interesting, hematocolpos and hematometrium. Um, I do a little adolescent gyne clinic, so I see a lot of hymenal problems in young women. So if you have an imperforate hymen or a transverse vaginal septum, and a gal comes in at menarche with just cyclic abdominal pain, but she never is bleeding, so your differential then is going to be an imperforate hymen or transverse vaginal septum, typically. So that's what you see here. 
something is blocking the blood from coming out, and this is a huge uterus full of blood, so it's a hematometria, okay, in that situation. Obstructed uterine horns, you could have um, malaria agenesis, rokotansky kusterhauser syndrome, but you can have a little remnant of the uterus. And in, in that disorder, where you don't have any growth of the uterus and the top part portion of the vagina, you have a blind vaginal pouch essentially, you still have functioning ovaries because that comes from the genital ridge, right? So they still develop female and, and they still have hormones on board. And you have this little uterine remnant that has a little endometrium inside of it. You stimulate it and she has cyclic pain. So you treat that by removing those remnants. Fibroids in this age group are rare in adolescents. They do exist. And then of course the functional cysts, benign cystic teratomas, etc. Masses during reproductive years, again, pregnancy-associated masses. So a woman comes in, oh, I feel like my belly's getting really big. I don't know what's going on. Okay, you're pregnant. That's, it's been missed before by patients and by doctors. So, you know, never take it for granted. Do your pregnancy test. Um, I have people come out all the time. I'm 49. I've had my period for six months. I must be going through menopause. Actually, no, you're pregnant, and so is your daughter. How fun. You guys get to do this together. <laughs> that was fun. Um, so ectopics, trophoblastic disease, etc. Fibroids are more common in this group. Nice little schematic of all the different places you can have fibroids. One day, like a year ago, we had two prolapsing fibroids in the same day in the ER. It was crazy, and it was like, oh my god, we got to go do another one. And you can get some really large fibroids that prolapse down. So if a woman comes in with contraction-like pain, and a lot of bleeding, and you put your speculum in there and some big, gigantic thing comes out, but it's not a baby. It's probably a prolapsing fibroid. And we take that to the OR and usually get up around the stock and just clip it off, and it's pretty straightforward. Adnexal masses, clearly in this group, this is a little past specimen of a dermoid. I love these, because I once got like seven teeth out of a 17-year-old, and she wanted them after surgery to take them home. It's like, okay, you can make a little necklace, like a little shark necklace. <laughs> she wanted to take it to school. Um, so again, just kind of a little table of masses in the perimenopausal and postmenopausal years. Mostly these are benign lyomyomas. You can get some uterine carcinomas and adnexal masses. And these are the types of adnexal masses. So overkill, so I'm going to skip through that. Okay, any questions so far before we do a few case reviews? Because I think it's 
pretty important. All right, you have a 32-year-old G2P2. She presents with seven weeks of amenorrhea and vaginal spotting and reports a mild cramping. Oh, this is good follow-up. She doesn't have any past medical history. She had an appy at age uh, 27. She's had two prior vaginal deliveries without any complications. Uh, normal triad, so her cycles and everything are pretty normal. No sexually transmitted infections, no abnormal paps. She uses pills, yeah, not the best. Uses pills for contraception. No breast, uterine, colon, or ovarian cancer. She's married, no domestic violence. Just takes the OCPs, doesn't have any allergies. This is her physical exam. Pretty stable, she's, you know, no distress, and uh, just minimally tender, no rebound or guardian. You do your speculum exam first, closed cervical os, no lesions in the vagina, a little bit of dark blood, her cervix is closed, there's no cervical motion tenderness, her uterus is mobile, and it feels about six weeks size, and there's no palpable nexal masses. Relatively benign. But of course, she has a positive urine pregnancy test. She didn't know, surprise. And those are the rest of her labs. Notice now we, we know she's pregnant, so we're always getting our type and our age. Always, 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 okay? And you get an ultrasound, and this is what you see. Does anybody see anything? Anyone want to interpret the ultrasound? Who said that? Yeah. 
53. 53%. So remember, if, it, if it's, you know, 100, it doesn't have to go to 200. It could be about 155. You're still really early. You know, it's going to scoot along a little bit. So you don't want to run in and disrupt that pregnancy. But this is going from 1231 to 1609. What's the other important thing about it going, does anybody know, up to 1609? Yeah, Randy, what's the discriminatory zone? And what does that mean? You should see something That's when you should see something in the uterus. You guys already know. This is awesome. So that's when you should see something. Not only did it not go up appropriately, it's above our discriminatory zone, for, at least for our institutions. Some institutions may set this up a little bit higher so they really don't miss a pregnancy. One of the things you have to worry about is if she didn't have this history and she said, oh, I had IVF and now I had this situation. If she has twins and she's very early, you're going to set your discriminatory zone higher because you can have higher beta HCG levels at earlier gestations. If it's a highly desired pregnancy and she's totally asymptomatic, you can follow this a little bit higher just to make sure that you're not missing an IUP. So at that point, you know, assuming we've done all our homework and the quant doesn't go up appropriately and we're past our discriminatory zone and all those other things are negative, OBGYN should be doing a DNC. Should be doing a DNC. I'll get to that in a minute. Not giving methotrexate, we should be doing a DNC first. Okay? I'll tell you why in a minute. 2% of pregnancies in the U.S. are ectopic. 9% of maternal pregnancy-related deaths are due to ectopic. There was a six-fold increase in ectopic pregnancies from 1970 to 1992. A lot of that was we were better at diagnosing because of ultrasound. Um, some of that was actually attributed to our on-top-of-it treatment of PID. Um, back in the day, PID would not get treated so quickly with antibiotics and tubes would completely scar down and women would just be infertile. <laughs> Nowadays, we're right on top of that PID and the tubes only partially scar down and now they get ectopics instead. The incidence of ectopic after IVF may be as high as 4.5%. Heterotopic pregnancy, we used to quote 1 in 30,000 for heterotopic pregnancy. That's a pregnancy in the uterus and a pregnancy outside the uterus somewhere. It's really not that common. That one in 30,000 came from some weird calculation somebody did on number of pregnancies per year multiplied by X by X by X, and so we had no way of validating that. Just looking back now, it looks like the incidence is more like one in 4,000 in the general population and maybe as high as one in 100 in IVF. For obvious reasons, if you're throwing multiple embryos up in there, you could have one fall somewhere it shouldn't be. Yes? The, the top line, the 2% of pregnancies that are ectopic, certainly is for all the population, but in urban emergency departments, it's as much as 8%. 10% of the diagnoses that we make as a new pregnancy in the ED is higher than that. Wow, yeah, so you guys really have to be on top of your ectopics. Size of ectopic, so they're usually in the tube, clearly. They can be down in the cervix, and they can be like on the outside of the cervix. So you can put a speculum in and see something attached to the outside of the cervix. Don't touch it. It bleeds and bleeds and bleeds very badly. Um, ovarian ectopics um, can be there, and they, you can have ectopics implanting on other organs. I'm sure you've seen that on, I don't know, CNN or something. Um, risk factors for ectopic damage to fallopian tubes because of prior PID, a history of ectopic pregnancy, of course, is at the top of the list. Prior tubal surgery, patient undergoes tubal reanastomosis for infertility, you know, really high suspicion. Altered tubal integrity, infertility, prior pelvic surgery. So if somebody comes in and say, like this gal, the, the case I presented, she's 20, she had an appendectomy when she was 27 or something I wrote. If that appendix was ruptured, she had diffuse peritonitis, she probably does have an increased risk of ectopic pregnancy because of all that peritonitis and inflammation could be affecting the tubes. Cigarette smoking, increasing age, and more than one lifetime sexual partner. 
Symptoms of uh, ectopic pregnancy, most commonly abdominal or pelvic pain, first trimester bleeding. If you're down the road to hypotension, tachycardia, and rebound tenderness, there's a lot of blood in that belly. And there were times when I was a resident, we were called by ER because of hypotension, tachycardia, and it was just a young female, and no labs were back yet. So general surgery's on one side, and we're on the other side, and we're all going to the ER going, what's the pregnancy test? Negative. You take her. So that was it. It was very busy at Denver Health Medical Center, I can tell you. Um, discriminatory zone, Randy gave a great, great uh, definition of that. It's the level of beta HCG at which a normal IUP can be visualized by ultrasonography with a sensitivity approaching 100%. So that's typically between about 1,500 and 3,000, um, depending on the institution. Setting your discriminatory zone high would minimize the risk of interrupting a viable pregnancy, but at the risk of letting an abnormal pregnancy go on, okay? We don't use the beta HCG, or we shouldn't be using the beta HCG, to see if the pregnancy's a normal intrauterine pregnancy. The beta HCG is used to rule out ectopic pregnancy. If you see pretty much everything normal, and you see a nice round gestational sac, and really nothing else going for ectopic, I would ultrasound that gal again in a week. I wouldn't bother with all these quants and running back and forth. It's a poor utilization of resources. It's, it's not cheap to have to keep dropping into the ER just for labs or whatever. If you see a yolk sac, that's pretty much definitive of an intrauterine pregnancy. Once you see a yolk sac, once you see a pregnancy, don't even get the quant. If, you, if you're in the ER and you've got your fast scan, you're like, oh, look, a baby. What do you need a quant for? There's a baby in there. It's not going to help me in two days to get another quant when I already know there's a baby in there. If there's an IUP, you know, it's either gonna make it or it's not. You know, I, I have to know that by ultrasound. The quant's not gonna help, help me at all. <coughs> if no IUP is visualized above the discriminatory zone, the recommendation is DNC to evaluate the contents of the uterus. Does that make sense? Why are we doing a DNC? Does anybody know? Yeah, why, why do we care about that? Why don't I just give that person methotrexate? It's an abnormal pregnancy. Who cares? Lower pregnancy. Oh, yeah. What? Lower pregnancy. No, that's not why. What's methotrexate? Chemo. Chemo. You want chemo? You don't want chemo. There are side effects of methotrexate that we shouldn't just, you know, we give it a lot, and we give it in relatively low doses, but if you've ever seen a patient with mucositis, it's horrible, you know, and you don't want to label this person as having ectopic pregnancy. Over 50% of the time, if we see an abnormally rising quant and we see nothing in the uterus, it's an abnormal intrauterine pregnancy. Because that's the more common thing. Up to 50% of early pregnancies are going to end up in miscarriage. It's just common. That's just nature. We see miscarriage all the time. It's not as common to have ectopic. We're worried about it. We order tests. We're scared about it because we don't want women dropping dead on our watch, and that's smart. But we shouldn't also be over-treating them and over-diagnosing them with a problem they don't have. It's not difficult to do a DNC. That patient, like I said, the patient that we, we looked at, that the quant went up to 1,600. If I do a DNC on that patient and I get chorionic villi, I've proven where the pregnancy is. What you're trying to do with the DNC is prove where the pregnancy is. Because if the quant rises abnormally, that, I don't know where it is. I just know it's not normal. And me doing a DNC doesn't disrupt a normal pregnancy. I'm treating this patient and I'm trying to make a diagnosis. So before we give people drugs, we should be making a diagnosis of what that person has. So if I do the DNC and I get villi, I've diagnosed her with an abnormal intrauterine pregnancy, and she's done. There's no follow-up quant. There's no, I'm so high risk in my next pregnancy. You have to ultrasound me every week. None of that stuff. 
If I do a DNC and she has no villi, she has a what? Ectopic, by definition, because I've emptied the uterus and there's no villi in there. So I've proven that the definition of ectopic pregnancy is a pregnancy outside the uterus. I've emptied the uterus, there's no pregnancy. So she has an ectopic pregnancy. So at that point, with a completely stable patient, I can talk to her about medical versus surgical management. Okay? Would you ever use methotrexate? Oh yeah, I use it all the time, but not until I diagnose where the pregnancy is. Okay. Now, if I see nothing in the uterus, and I clearly see a mass separate from the uterus and the adnexa, is it wrong to give methotrexate? No, but you need to be pretty darn sure what you're treating to be able to make the diagnosis. I see all of the time, even still with my residents, despite how many times I give this lecture, oh, we just gave methotrexate. Why'd you do that? And there have definitely been plenty of cases documented where methotrexate was given early and it was an intrauterine pregnancy. So you don't want chemo to a live baby, okay? Minimal rise and fall of beta HCG. We already talked about the minimal rise for a potentially viable pregnancy being 53%. A decline in beta HCG in two days, on the other hand, of 21 to 35% is really more suggestive of a miscarriage. After evacuation of the uterus, the beta HCG should drop at least 15% 12 to 24 hours after the procedure. Why do I put that in there? Maybe you don't have a pathologist immediately available. I was in the Navy, I was in 29 Palms, we had no pathologist. So I do a DNC, and if I was really worried about the patient, keep her in house overnight, just check her beta in the morning, and if it really dropped, then I knew I treated it appropriately. When do you do the DNC? As I mentioned, no IUP, visualized above the discriminatory zone, abnormal rise or fall of the beta HEG, prior to giving methotrexate, unless you really know, you see that mass. Presumptive treatment of a woman with an abnormal pregnancy of unknown location with methotrexate prior to forming a DNC to obtain a tissue diagnosis does not reduce the complications of cost or treatment. So we're still trying to, we're thinking about utilization and cost management and things like that. That's important. You know, some people think, oh, you're gonna waste all this time doing a DNC and you could just give her methotrexate. Well, because of the side effects and because of all the follow-up that patient needs and repeat labs in four days, repeat labs in seven days, come back to the doctor multiple times, that's not really saving the patient or you all any money or time. Methotrexate can be considered for those with a confirmed ectopic pregnancy, and the criteria really are that they're hemodynamically stable, the mass is unruptured. Sometimes we see ultrasound with the belly full of blood and the beta is really only three or four hundred. I'll still take that patient for laparoscopy because, you know, what am I going to give her methotrexate for that? No way. I got to get all that stuff out of there. Able to comply with follow up. You've got a sketchy patient, there's no way we're giving her methotrexate. She's got to come back. Normal creatinine, LFTs, and no bone marrow dysfunction. That's just because of how methotrexate works and it's renally cleared. So you want to make sure that we're not uh, causing the patient more harm. This is just how methotrexate works. You can read about it, folic acid antagonist. Who can't you give methotrexate to? This is important in case you guys are doing any counseling down there. Guy may come down, offer you a medicine, blah, blah, blah. Well, if they're an alcoholic, they have liver disease or breastfeeding. Um, after pulmonary disease, et cetera, we're not gonna give a methotrexate. Pretty much if the gestational sac is larger than about three and a half, or you're already seeing cardiac motion out in the adnexa, they need a surgery. And really, if their beta is above six or 7,000, it, it's been shown that methotrexate is not gonna work as well. So counseling, this is a little too much. Methotrexate side effects, this is important because we give methotrexate sometimes, the patient will come back to see you in a couple days with all this pain, and it's like, what happened? Did she rupture or what's going on? 
It's actually pretty common to get abdominal pain two or three days after administration. It's probably maybe even a little tubal abortion happening. The methotrexate's working and it's kind of, you know, the, the pregnancy has stopped growing. Nausea, vomiting, stomatitis, bloody diarrhea, dizziness, uh, neutropenia, pneumonitis is reported here, but very rare. Um, surgery should be done for evidence of tubal rupture. And this is in your handout, and I think it's gonna be especially helpful to y'all. It's in uh, one of our journals, and I have my residents cut it out and put it in their little book. It's your algorithm for first trimester bleeding. Basically, what do you do? Early pregnancy with pain and bleeding, you wanna get an ultrasound, because if there's an IUP, you just say, hey, follow up with your gynecologist, expect it management. If you see an ectopic pregnancy right away, you're gonna treat it, as we talked about. If you see an abnormal intrauterine pregnancy, then you do expectant management versus DNC. So if you go in there and you do an ultrasound, you see a crown rump length and no cardiac activity, that's when you say, unfortunately, you've had a miscarriage, your body was either gonna pass it on its own or we can do a DNC. Counseling's easy. Non-diagnostic ultrasound, like we had in the prior slide, is where you do your beta HCG, you go through the whole discriminatory zone thing, and then you decide what to do from there. Evaluate the uterine contents, meaning DNC, you know, find out where the pregnancy is, or, you know, yay, the baby is growing appropriately and follow up with the gynecologist. So very straightforward, kind of goes over everything we just talked about. Okay, a couple short cases. We have seven minutes. Okay, TR is a 24-year-old G0, presents the ER with right lower quadrant pain. Reports some nausea and vomiting with the pain and describes it as 10 out of 10. Who knows what the diagnosis is already? Anybody? Yeah. What is it? because I'm a gynecologist giving the lecture, right? <laughs> she has a family history of kidney stones. <laughs> How about that? No female cancers. I should have made it kidney stones just for you guys just to see. Um, 100.3, she's uncomfortable. She's writhing in pain. This is very textbook. A little bit tachycardic. She's got tenderness in the right lower quadrant. I'm trying to mix you up, you know, a little appy in there. Some nausea, vomiting, a little bit of rebound mild guarding. So these, this is your differential, right lower quadrant pain and a young female. This is like every day for you, right? So what's, a, what's on your differential? You think she's got some fullness, but it's a really hard exam because she's off the table and it hurts. She doesn't have any CVA tenderness. She's just got pain. Eh. Appendicitis, <laughs> kidney stones, ovarian torsion, or ruptured hemorrhagic cysts. Like I said, that can happen. Just, and their belly full of blood irritates you. You're distended. It hurts. Ultrasound, anybody want to tell me what's going on here? No flow. We love hearing no flow, right? No flow in a mass. Gynecology is consulted, takes the patient urgently, and they let us in right away to the operating room for a suspected ovarian torsion. That's what you see here. Nice, beautiful torsion. The infantibulo-pelvic ligament and the mass here is the ovary. It's pretty. The torsion is reversed and cystectomy is performed and the ovary is salvaged. So it occurs most commonly during the reproductive years. One out of five women actually are pregnant when the condition is diagnosed. Most susceptible ovaries are those that are enlarged secondary to ovulation induction during early pregnancy. The most common cause of adnexal torsion is ovarian enlargement. Typically, once they get to eight centimeters or so, we start really worrying about torsion. Smaller than eight, they don't torse as much. When they get really bigger than 12, they're so big, they can't really torse. They're kind of stuck in the pelvis, so eight to 12 centimeters. Torsion of a normal ovary is possible and tends to happen more in the pediatric population. Dermoids are the, most uh, the two more most frequently reported with adnexal torsion, and that's because there's a cystic and solid components in a dermoid, and so they flop around a little bit more, so they tend to torse. 
Also, derm wounds are relatively common in young women, so that's why. 50% of women, this is important, 50% of women with a confirmed adnexal torsion will have a normal Doppler flow study. So don't put all your eggs in one basket. Just because it says, oh, there's flow to the ovary. If she's writhing around and she's got a mass and it looks and smells like torsion otherwise, who cares? She still needs to buy herself a scope. The sooner you can get in there and reverse the torsion, you can save the ovary. If you get in there and it's totally necrotic and nasty, that's coming out. It's a shame to do that to a 19 or 20 year old gal. How often are you seeing bilateral, not torsion, but pain that they complain of? Is it really only unilateral? It's typically more unilateral if it's a true torsion. Can I ask a couple questions? Yeah. Does it, does, do they, if they have intermittent pain, is there, do they really have this like tors on tors? Yeah, tors they can tors? for several days beforehand. And sometimes the, the key event with torsion is intercourse. Sounds funny, but yeah, they knock that ovary somewhere. And, and then or no I've seen gymnasts, like literally, they do some sort of activity and it twists and then that's it. And if there's no cyst or mass there and they're like adult age? Unvery really, unlikely. Really unlikely. Yeah, okay. you typically need to see a cyst. But if they're in that much pain anyway, a lot of times we're going in to scope them. Yeah. Okay, really quick, because I think this is super important because I've been down to the ER with this situation. AP is a 27-year-old G1P1 who presents to the ER with an enlarged tender labia. She states she noted the swelling a few days ago, but the pain became intolerable that morning, and she denies fevers or chills or any new sexual partner. She's had a C-section, blah, blah, blah. Basically, she's in pain. It hurts down there. What the heck is going on? Her exam, you see an enlarged left labia. It's exquisitely tender. No erythema of the surrounding skin, speculum exam with no cervical lesions. You're in there, you do cervical cultures, which you should do, and the pelvic exam is otherwise normal. What does she have? Yeah, okay. Hugely important. You guys see this quite a bit. Bartholin's gland cysts are on the inside. They're at like four and six o'clock. You should normally not be able to palpate them. They get enlarged, and typically they can start to get enlarged just with the, as a cyst, and they're usually asymptomatic. But as they get bigger, sometimes they can become an abscess, and that's when they're exquisitely tender and painful, and we need to drain them. We do not drain them from the labia side, ever, ever, ever. And I have seen from our ER patients come to my office with a ward catheter sticking out of their labia. Sad, sad face. Um, and we were just called down recently for a Barclans as well you got to really retract that and get the ward in on the inside, okay? Bartholin's glands, like I said, here they are, normally not palpable. They're deep in the perineum at about 5 and 7 o'clock. 2% of adult women develop an enlargement of one or both glands in a life, lifetime. Usually asymptomatic, I talked about that. This is what the ward catheter looks like. Differential diagnosis of Bartholin's include mesonephric cysts of the vagina and epithelial inclusion cysts. Be careful, make sure it's really a Bartholin's because very occasionally you can have a lipoma there, fibroma, a hernia, don't want to put your ward in there, vulvar varicosity, or a hydrocele. And those can be confirmed with a Bartholin's duct cyst. Biopsy for gland enlargement in women older over 40. A woman over 40, we really need to exclude adenocarcinoma of the Bartholin's gland. So that's when we're going to biopsy that cyst wall. So, Alternative treatment to a ward catheter, you can do a marsupialization. That's basically where, again, you're retracting that back, you make an incision, and then we sew the cyst wall out to the labia or out to the vaginal mucosa like that and tack it in. You're basically trying to make a fistulous tract to the outside. That's what a ward's doing. Typically, we'll do that if it's a recurrent Barthlins. If you've had multiple abscesses, 
We'll take that patient to the OR for a Bartholin's gland excision, which is actually pretty difficult because of the blood supply down to the Bartholin's. It can be really bloody. But a ward catheter placement is actually pretty straightforward and pretty easy and pretty fun when you do it. It's very satisfying for you and the patient. So you sometimes you need an extra hand to help you because you, you know, you've got all your instruments. Really want to retract that labia back and get on the inside. I just, you don't even need much lidocaine, just a few cc's on the skin. Stab incision. I, I'll sometimes stabilize that Bartholin's because the little cyst can wiggle around. And just get that knife in there, puncture it. It feels just like a balloon and pus just starts falling out all over the place. I, I really don't tend to, to um, culture that much because it's usually polymicrobial. There's no point. And if there's no surrounding erythema, you really don't even need to give them antibiotics. So you make a, the smallest stab incision you can. The bigger the stab incision, that ward catheter is going to fall out. And it's a bummer. So you make the stab incision, you get your ward catheter, stick it in, got to get it in pretty far because once you blow up the balloon, it'll start to want to come out. And then you inject about five cc's of just sterile water into the end of that balloon. Once it's in there, it's not moving, you stick the end of that into the vagina. So it's not like in her undergarments to walk around with a little piece of rubber between her legs. So stick, it in, <laughs> stick it in the vagina. They even say they can have intercourse with that in there. Why you would, why you would want to, I don't know. All right, patient's treated in the ER with a successful IND of her Bartholin's gland abscess and placement of a ward catheter. She's not given any antibiotics as there was no surrounding cellulitis. She's discharged home with instructions regarding sitz baths, and she's supposed to come back in four to six weeks. That ward catheter should stay in for four to six weeks, and if you're good at placing them, they will stay in for four to six weeks. If you make your incision too big, they'll fall out within a couple days. And she has an increased risk of failing, and that cyst closing over again, and there you are again having to do it all over. Look at that. I started late, and it's 2 o'clock on the dot. Nice. I skipped one case on um, acute bleeding. It's not a big deal, but... That's based, it was a patient who was anovulating, perimenopausal, and she was bleeding, 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 and we did, we ultimately did a DNC for that patient. Um, the patient's acutely bleeding in the ER, and she's in her 40s because of perimenopause, anovulation. The basic bottom line was for acute vaginal bleeding, the treatment of choice typically is IV Premarin, although in studies PO Premarin works as well. And within about four to six hours, that estrogen is gonna help rapidly grow the endometrial lining, stabilize the patient and the bleeding. And then within another day or so, we add progesterone. Okay, but TMI. All right. So for the for the average dysfunctional uterine bleeding that's determined to be treated with hormonal therapy, yes, we get fifteen different oral contraceptive regimens recommended. Is there a party line of what we should prescribe? Textbook answer is a high dose estrogen pill because. The reason people are using oral contraception in the first place is because you want to get them out of the hospital and it's really the estrogen that's going to help them. So we used to use 50 microgram pills, which we can't even really get anymore, four of those a day, throughout the day, not all at once, but four times a day for like four days, then three a day for three days, two a day for two days, and then one a day for until forever, until you can get them on regular OCPs. I would just pick a non-low dose pill, like a standard 35 mic pill, and you can do the same thing with pretty good results. So it would, it would do us a lot of good if your department could just tell us what to give. Sure. Because the regimen you just described just went in one area and out the other. And sure. Right. So yeah. people call it the spear off method. Is I know. It isn't a spear off. You didn't recommend one particular thing. But well, he didn't recommend one pill. Give it, us it, the 
It's because we don't care. That's really why. Right. You can take any old one. pill. So give us one because we're, we're fair. Okay, orthocycline. If a patient doesn't have insurance, yeah. orthocycline is generic now. I think it's called a ortho, I don't know what it's called. I don't know what the generic is, but you can get it for nine bucks at Walmart. So any patient who doesn't have insurance can have that one. Generic for orthocycline. Yeah. And how many days do you get for? Four a day for four days, then three for three days, two for two days, and then continue until you see your gynecologist. <laughs> okay, sure. And anytime anything like that comes up between our departments, our administrative chief residents are Amanda Gorman and Heidi Krauss, and they're fantastic, and I work with them quite a bit. So, you know, even with, like within family medicine, we're doing some lectures with them, and our chief residents are organizing that. So if you want more lectures, if you want whatever else, help, you know, they can help you, I can help you and we would love to increase our collaboration because obviously we work together quite a bit as far as all the departments go. So we'd be happy to come down anytime. <laughs> anytime you've got a Barthlins and you want to do it, super. I'd love for you guys to treat all the Barthlins. Um, but call us if you haven't done one and we'd be happy to come down with you. And if we're not happy to come down with you, email me and I'll talk to the resident who wasn't so happy to come down with you. <laughs> yeah. So you guys don't use much lidocaine Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no point. Well, I mean, it can be months. exquisitely tender, right. and depending on the patient, there was one in the ER the other day, she was like, woo, off the wall. She was yeah. getting like morphine and stuff, it was crazy. In my office, I just use a little bit of lidocaine, I talk them down, but you gotta be quick. I mean, you don't wanna be palpating and moving stuff around. You wanna move it over, give a little bit of lidocaine, and stab it, and get it out of there. Because as soon as you deflate that and you get that relief, you know, it's a big pus ball, you gotta relieve it. And they're so happy, like, oh, I feel so much better. Then you put the ward in and blow it up, and they feel like they still have a cyst, but you kind of got to go with that. Yeah. But we did that. Where I trained is we had nitrous, and I used to use that as an adjunct. With the lighter. You know, we can do DNCs in the office, so when I hear that, I'm like, wow, with none of that. I mean, cervical block, and so for a Barth lens, literally, I'm like, Hold still, it's gonna be fine, and then it's over. <laughs> so that's all we do. All right, any other questions? I know you have another lecture, so if you have any more, I'll step out. Thank you. guys, let's take three minutes, and then we're going to have an RSI lecture, uh, which is a little off topic, but it's going to be absolutely essential. I didn't get any answer. One second.